an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 586. Uh, At Midnight is going to New York the week of November 3rd, uh, 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th. Um, We're going to have some pretty kick-ass panels of New York comedians there and uh, essentially running around New York um, causing uh, at midnight havoc uh, on Comedy Central. So join us for that. And then also Talking Dead is back and the podcast is going on right now. So lots of stuff to smoosh into your ears and your eyes. Paul Rubens, who was a ridiculously amazing guest, really soft-spoken guy, tells incredible stories and he's promoting the release of the remastered set of Pee-wee's Playhouse, which uh, it's been remastered from the original 35 millimeter film. It also includes 11 mini documentaries with interviews from the cast and the show. And it's all out October 21st on Blu-ray and DVD at PeeWee.com and, of course, uh, other retailers. So here's Nurse Podcast number 586 with Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee-wee Herman. But you already knew that. I don't know why I had to... I don't know why I had to act like, you'd be like, well, I don't know, if you listen to this podcast, you know. Okay, good. We're square. Now entering Nerdist.com. Just saying that I did. I did my kid show here two years. What on this lot? Wait, this we've yeah. already started recording. So I mean, oh. just now. So that so that's a good. Oh, place we can to come start. back to that if you want. No, 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 no. Where were you on this on this lot? Right next door to here, I think. Going that way, like on the other side of the gate. That first stage on the. This lot. is where the Saturday morning show was. Uh-huh. Holy shit! Yeah, that's... I mentioned earlier it was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and if you came there. To that, to come into my stage, you would be met at the door by a security guard sitting on a metal folding chair, and the security guard was John Singleton. Are you serious? What? Mm-hmm. The the Boys John, in the Hood director? John, that's how Lawrence Fishburne wound up in Boys in the Hood. Oh, crazy! <laughs> Seriously, he would he would go. Have you read my script, Mister Rubens? Or he would, you know, Mister Fishburne. You know, did you read the script yet? And I. Lawrence read it. I, I didn't read it. There wasn't a part for me in it anyway. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I was. I just never had time to do it. But I remember him very, very clearly. He was a super nice guy. We're still in touch. He's, you know, he's, you know, he's on the bonus material, actually. That's Whoa. insane. I had no idea. Well, you know, Rob Zombie PA'd on the original Pee Wee show. He claims. That's a claim. He says he did it. <laughs> uh-huh. 
no, I he probably did, but I, I don't. I didn't know him then. I think he. I think he was just a PA, so he might have just been he running. He was a PA in New York with the company yeah. Broadcast Arts, and so I didn't know all those people. Yeah, oh, okay. that's pretty incredible. Is that, who? Who else, is anyone else connected with the show that? People don't necessarily know about. I don't think so. No, I think those are the those are the two big ones. So when did it? Uh, I'm sure you've told these stories a million times, but I I, I really want to hear it. So I apologize, but I mean I, I I was the perfect age for the original. Like when the first it was HBO special, right? The first mm-hmm. HBO special um, was that 81, 80, 81. 81. So. When did you? Where first of all, where are you from, and then what got you out to the Groundlings? I was born in the same hospital as Mel Gibson in Peekskill, New York. <laughs> <laughs> For years, I, I waited to meet Mel Gibson so I could tell him that. And when I finally met him, he went, "I know, we're born in the same hospital." Before I even got it out, because I'd told so many people. That. <laughs> uh, and uh, I grew up in Oneonta, New York, really tiny little town. Um, in upstate New York. And then we moved when I was in fourth grade to Florida, Sarasota, Florida, winter headquarters of Ringling Brothers Circus. Uh-huh. So that was an incredible place to grow up as a kid because it was extremely crazy, colorful people, eccentric people everywhere. And Did growing up sort of with one foot in circus, did that begin to inform... Your comedy or peewee or any anything? Sort of. I mean, I, I was already kind of obsessed with being an actor before we moved to Florida. As a really little kid in upstate New York, I would be sitting on the floor watching my parents watch TV and thinking, like, this can't be my real family. Like, I, how am I going to get out of Oneonta, New York and get to Hollywood? <laughs> you know, I was just, I was just obsessed with I, I, it. It had something to do with Howdy Doody and I Love Lucy. Yeah, I don't know why, but and an Indian pageant that I saw when I was a kid. A what? An Indian pageant, like Oneonta, New York is Iroquois Indian mm-hmm. territory, and so when I was in kindergarten, they took us into an auditorium one day, the school auditorium, and I don't, I don't think we even knew what was going on. I we were sitting there, and all of a sudden the lights went out and the curtain went up, and all the sixth grade kids were dressed like Indians, singing this Indian song. The boys had. Uh, loincloths and braids and they were like hitting drums and the girls were in buckskin you know with pigtails and i i mean i like almost i think i did freak out i I, I was like oh my god i'd never seen anything theatrical in my life before and uh i somehow looked at that and i was like that's it i'm I'm either an Indian or in show business. <laughs> One or the other. There was something you were connected with. And then, we... yeah. and, and then I wound up being an Indian in show business or, hey. or early on in The Groundlings. One of my earliest characters was an American Indian lounge singer, which I, <laughs> I didn't realize was incredibly incorrect at the time, politically incorrect, but... But this must have been in the late seventies, then. Yeah, yeah. And so, what was the what was the the landscape of the Groundlings at that time? I, I guess was Phil was Phil Hartman in at that time, or yeah. Tr- Tress McNeil? Tress McNeil was not. Pat, Phil, Pat Phil, Morita was like a Groundling. Pat Morita was gone already. Okay, there were like legendary people that you know. You should have been here during the Pat Morita day, you know, like, <laughs> right? Or you remind me of so and so that was already come and gone. Right. Um, but I was there early, early on. The theater wasn't open yet. We didn't have a permit to open that theater on Melrose. So it was really a workshop. It wasn't, we didn't, we weren't performing for audiences. Really? How'd you find it? 
Like, how did you come across it to know about it? My, um, I lived in Echo Park. When I came out to California to go to California Institute of the Arts, the Disney school. Yeah. And so I was there the first year of that in Valencia, the second year of the school, but the first year of the brand-new campus. Yeah. And um, I had been at Boston University the year before that, where I got off the elevator my first day, and there were a bunch of kids standing around a baby grand piano singing Broadway show tunes. And I, I went to myself, like, oh, my God, I'm in the wrong place. Like, this is it. <laughs> you know, I... I, I was in my James Dean kind of period, like, you know, I'm a serious actor and avant-garde. And I, I, I wanted to be like way out. I didn't want yeah. to be like in kind of a traditional theater program. And so I, I just kind of made a mistake, I think, with where I wound up. I mean, it was a great place. There were a lot. I, I'm still in touch with people. Alfred Woodard was in my class oh, there wow. at Boston University. It was uh, lots of great people, but it just wasn't for me. So I came out. Uh, to California, to Boston, to Cal Arts, which was exactly what I was looking for. It was like completely berserk, and everybody was really way out and avant-garde and weird. And it, it was exactly exactly what I was looking for. Yeah. And um, I forgot what you asked me. Though. No, it was just like, <laughs> like, how did you get to the Jonesing? How did you yeah. even find the Groundlings? And you said you came in through. Oh, I left Cal Arts and moved to Hollywood. I was living in Echo Park, and I lived next door to an actor who I had known from Florida. And uh, I was at his house one day, my next-door neighbor's house, and there was a friend of his there who said, oh, I'm in this group, The Growlings, and we have a show coming up. And in fact, we're, we're having auditions, like, tomorrow. Or I think the show was the next day, and the auditions were a couple days from that. So I went to see a show, and... Uh, up until then, my experience with comedy and actors kind of in general was there was sort of two schools of, um, I just, I hadn't met a lot of people that were, that had the combination of being super talented and super nice. People were either really nice or really talented, but it wasn't the same. It was never the same kind of combo. So the Groundlings was really interesting right away to me because I thought everyone was really talented. And then I went backstage and met everybody and everyone was nice. So I was drawn into it from that because I, I just was looking for something where people weren't kind of backstabby, like, mm -hmm. you know, just show busy kind of mean spirited yeah. competitiveness so the groundlings was was what i was looking for i just well you would hope so because ultimately the underlying principle is teamwork <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you would hope well but there's plenty of teamwork kind of situations where people are like yeah i'll do the teamwork but i'm not fond of you right <laughs> right right or they yeah. or they or they kind of like i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of ransack the scene for this one character or this one joke yeah you know, and let's not be warm, right? You know, at the same time, you know. But that, but that, that must have been such a, that must have been such a fertile time because the in the late seventies, you you essentially have, um, this comedy boom that's about to pop wide open, and uh, so there there must have been at least in the stand up world, so there must have been a, a, a parallel sketch improv like people are going out to live shows and. And and consumers are wanting to see as much comedy as possible. Yes, I think that's true. I think like it didn't work that way 
quite yet for the Groundlings because we didn't have a real showcase yet. We had this great theater in this great location, but it wasn't open to the public and no one knew about it. So the Groundlings had prior to that with Phil Hartman and Pat Morita and all those people, Lorraine Newman, um, were at a little theater on off of Western and uh, the Oxford Theater, Oxford and Santa Monica Boulevard. Okay. Basically, Santa Monica and Western, not like a great section of town. but <laughs> Right next to the freeway on ramp. <laughs> right. And a lot of massage parlors. Right. Uh, at, at that time. And... Um, that was that was where it started. Then they had this theater uh, on Melrose that uh, they spent two or three years building and couldn't open it for all kinds of different reasons. One of the guy, the guy who built that theater, a guy named Archie Hahn, was um, turned down Saturday Night Live to finish building that oh, theater oh, and do wow. and be in the Groundlings. It was Holy they they, shit. Tried, they hired him and Lorraine Newman, and he like said no because he wanted to finish building the theater <laughs> well i mean listen there's sort of a mr holland's opus kind of a thing there where he, <laughs> had he not done that a whole several generations of brilliant comedy performers may not have been discovered right and he had a great career too so what uh so what what did you when did you initially start doing at growlings was it sketch or was it improv or wh- when did you start developing characters well, that's kind of the main focus of the Groundlings is character work. So I started developing characters almost as soon as I got in there, particularly in that I'm I'm a terrible improviser. So my whole improv thing is I mug instead of improvise. So people do their improv, and then I just mug, 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 and <laughs> mug some more. And, you know, I'm, my whole thing kind of developed from not being a very good improviser. Pee Wee Herman came about from... Uh, a sketch we were doing about a place like the comedy store and we were all supposed to come in with a character of someone who you would see in a comedy club. So my character was the guy that would never make it in a comedy club. (laughs) (laughs) And I I can't in real life remember punchlines to jokes. So my whole thing was just like toys and props and being a bad comic. So Pee Wee Herman started out as like, I'm going to tell a joke and then I would get halfway through and go like, oh, I forgot I forgot this part. I forgot to, you know, set up a key setup thing. And then I would go back and do that. And then I would forget the punchline and mug a lot. <laughs> fortunately, it all worked out good. I it, mean, worked it, out it, could, it could have worked out so bad, but... But it worked out literally the best possible. <laughs> <laughs> it could have worked out. I mean, you know, I... I it's funny they say you don't remember punchlines because... I still very clearly remember the joke that you told on Letterman of, uh, I don't know his name, but the face rings a bell, where it's this super long setup, and then I don't know his name, but the face rings a bell, and then you fell on the ground, you know, like, as Pee-wee cackling. Because I thought it was really funny. (laughs) To this day, I think that joke is really funny. (laughs) I still think that joke's funny. Do you know that joke? I I remember that joke, yeah. Where the guy runs up and he bangs his face in the bell, and he bangs it. The setup... I but, told two really long jokes. There's another one that I told. I, that's, a, a lot of that stuff is newly out on either YouTube or in the process of getting released. Um, the, all my stuff. I was on David Letterman's late night show every two months for two years. Wow. I had like a secret, um, a secret contract uh, that, that he d- denies to this day ever existed. <laughs> but uh, if you're listening, Dave. 
I have a copy of it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I was on every two months for two years. And uh, some of my best stuff I ever did, I think. Because normally if you're a comic, you go on a show like that, you do a couple minutes out of your act. I didn't have an act, so I would write stuff for that show. And then at the end of that two-year period... I took all the material I wrote on his show and made it into an act and went on a tour. It was completely backwards hmm. to what you would normally do. But that was such a great time in, in the Letterman show too, because he was it was he was experimenting and just this idea of creating this like um, ragtag group of Larry Bud Melman, you know, the guy and Chris Elliott, like all these, yeah. just all this this wide cast of regulars basically which he's widely copied on that now i mean he kind of started that i think to some degree well i mean a carson had like the carson players and it wasn't really the i mean it you know carson's show was much more um institutional and structured and you know the the, the appeal of letterman's or, or early show was like oh hey here's this guy and he's kind of snarky and he wears tennis he wears sneakers with his yeah. suit pant you know like with his dockers and a tie it was and chaotic he's chaotic and yeah. sort of um, uh, yeah it was like punk it was like it was almost like punk rock as punk rock as a talk show on network could be at the time and breaking format and breaking structure and mm-hmm. you know like involving like Carson didn't really involve the crew you know, but Letterman, it was just like the whole... And it, you know, it is kind of interesting to think about it. It was that it, Letterman's show was almost kind of playhouse-y in a weird, in a weird sort of way without, without labeling it that. But it was anything could happen anywhere mm-hmm. within the show. It predates the playhouse, too. I mean, I had already done the stage version, but it was, it was way before the kids show. So when did you... When at the Groundlings did you start... What were some of the other characters that you were doing at the time? And what was it about... Peewee that you were like, oh, I think maybe this is the guy I want to go with. Well, the the audience reaction to Peewee Herman was completely different than anything else I ever did. So I I had been kind of waiting for a while to see what was going to happen. Like, what, what, what would I wind up doing? I, I, I had this thing where I, I felt like um, when I was in art school or actually any time leading up to being in the Groundlings, I had this thing going with myself where I would always, whatever I was interested in, I would always think to myself, don't question what that is. Like, don't, (laughs) don't go like, is this something I should be spending my time on? Even though, (laughs) even if it was something really weird, um, or, or abstract and I couldn't figure out what the connection to it was. Um, because I had lots and lots of interests. And so whatever I would be interested in, I felt I had this kind of calm sort of thing within myself of just going, it's going to be revealed what you're doing, what what this means or that means, and what you're supposed to do with all this stuff in your brain will be revealed in some way at some point. I mean, it was like I thought I was living in... A, Kung Fu, that TV show or something. I was like, I, I was like this weird, like it will be revealed, you know, this Zen person who that wasn't me on any other level at all. But I always kind of, for years in college, felt like don't worry about anything. It's gonna, you're gonna know what it is at the at the right time. And 
Luckily for me, that's what, that's exactly what happened with Pee Wee Herman. This is a I, non-traditional I had, performer's mindset. Yeah, <laughs> I had all these other characters that I loved, and then I got great reactions when we finally opened the theater. Um, and yet, Pee Wee Herman was a completely different thing. And I feel like if I did anything smart at all, it was recognizing that it was just going, oh, you know what? This might be it. This might be the thing you've been waiting for. And I also was, this is weird, but I was obsessed with this song from the movie, which I'd never seen the movie. I'd only seen a clip of this movie, Gypsy. And there was a song in it with these three strippers singing, You Gotta Have a Gimmick. (laughs) And I kind of looked at Pee Wee Herman and went like, I think this is it. This this is this is the gimmick I was kind of looking for. Not to be crass. I mean, I no, I know. What I, you I mean. didn't. I didn't really ever inhabit Pee Wee Herman as like this is my ticket and you know <laughs> like uh, my gimmick. But but I but I recognized this this could be what I should pursue. And and I remember at the time when I was formulating that and talking about that a lot with one of my closest friends at the Groundlings was Phil Hartman and. Phil was like tortured by that, that I was going to stop doing all my other characters. We argued about that all the time. And he would always go like, you're totally wrong. That's wrong. You shouldn't do it that way. And I mean, we both had different paths and different careers. I mean, he got to be known for all those amazing characters he did. I have characters no one's ever seen or people, (laughs) people remember them from... 150 years ago, but... So how did you fight? Did you ever have the urge, like, well, now that Pee-wee's popular, maybe I can use that to kind of sandwich in some of these other characters? I never did. I don't know why. I never really felt like that. And, and I mean, I've had lots of people go, remember that character? Or I just never... I don't know. I think part of it was when Pee-wee Herman really hit and the movie came out, and then I was doing the television series. There was about a five- or six-year period there where I never had time to do anything else. Of course. Just really, if somebody said, oh, let's make a movie out of this character, I'd be, yeah, when? Right. When do we do that? But um, I don't know. After a certain period of time of like inhabiting one character all the time, you... For me, I guess I just got this kind of affection for the character, and I didn't really care that much about the other one. So you never, you never felt like, oh, fuck, I gotta put the bow tie on again. Like it was all, was it, did you every time? Was it still exciting, or did you ever feel trapped by it? No, I never felt trapped by it because I changed the rules of it as it as it went along. Like there were things that I would be like, PB would never do this, and then. You know, after a long stretch of not doing something else and feeling like, oh, I'd really love to do this one thing, I'd find a way for Pee Wee to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I would just sort of relax the rules or change something about it. And so I I feel like I got to do pretty much everything I wanted to do. I mean, there's there are things I still haven't done probably as an actor, and, and even Pee Wee hasn't done that probably could be happening in the future will I mean, be happening in the it future. must be kind of it must be kind of fun to have your public persona be so like where you can come home and just be like okay now i'm paul like rather than now where i feel like you know because we're so connect- interconnected with everyone at all times because of social media it's like we're pretty much always there's like there are no pieces really there aren't that many pieces where we're just kind of like ourselves at home. It's all being shared. We're all out there in the world. But it seems like Pee-wee's the public guy, and you know I still get to be Paul at home and have them be separate. <clears throat> I'm Pee-wee at home all the time. Oh, yeah. no, I, 
I don't know who I am at home. I'm always confused. Um, yes, what you said is absolutely correct. I, I, I and and I think is probably true with it's maybe built into having an alter ego. I, I was just talking to someone the other day about. Um, having an alter ego because it's kind of a small club. Like there's not that many. I mean, Minnie Pearl was mm-hmm. a friend of mine. I was the first year oh, wow. of um, first year of comic relief. I'm in a tent backstage at Universal with every single person in comedy. I mean, you look across the room and it's Jerry Lewis. I mean, you name it, they're there. And I'm everyone's dressed kind of normal. I'm in my little peewee suit and I'm like, Oh God. And I look across the room and the only other person that's dressed like a freak (laughs) is Minnie Pearl. (laughs) And we look at each other and like beeline for each other, you know? Cause I mean, Minnie Pearl, Elvira, there's not very many. It's just, I don't, I don't have the complete list, but there's not very many people who become famous for being somebody else. And there is something really nice about that because you do get to leave it at the office you know um but i wonder what cassandra happened. peterson who's elvira yeah. has been started in the growlings been a friend of mine for many years i just went to see her show at not scary farm not scary not farm. scary farm last uh this past friday and um i was just thinking about about her and how she i mean even more extreme than me she no one knows what she looks like you know out of that character i i'm at this point now where when i take my peewee makeup off and take the suit off i you know i got the same face (laughs) you know she has um she wears a very different makeup for elvira she's a redhead in real life i mean she just doesn't look any you you would have to be pointed out like that's Elvira. she's so warm and sweet too I, i just met her for the first time a few a handful of months ago just like such a such a sweet woman so yeah. nice. Yeah. Does anything does anything kind of psychologically happen when your alter ego is such a defined part of who your brain is, or do you just sort of? Is it, are there just like two compartments? It's like here's the Paul compartment and here's the Pee Wee compartment. Or do they ever do they ever bleed over into one another? No, I don't think they bleed over. I mean, sometimes I try to figure out what uh, if, if I'm doing something. If that's something that Pee Wee could do, or. Um, in the same way as I'm always, my entire life seems to be a filter sometimes for, could that be a good Facebook post or could I tweet that? You know, like that's sort of how I, how I go with Pee Wee too. It's like you know, as I move through life, things happen to me, and I go, oh, is that could that inform Pee Wee Herman, um, or is that just informing me? You know, I, I don't know. It is interesting to you know just. I was just thinking about Phil Phil Hartman again, and, and I don't know if most people know this, but I'm sure a lot of people do. But he was such a multifaceted artist. I mean, he I mean, not only was one of the most brilliant uh, character people, but he also, I mean, obviously people know that he he wrote. You guys wrote together. You wrote Big Adventure. He was Big Adventure together, and and but he was also a graphic designer. Yeah, that yeah. he did the cover art. If you look at the album America's Greatest Hits, and it's like the art is like P. Hartman, or like it's it's him. Like yeah, he he did that. Yeah. yeah. So what was, what what was Phil like as a guy, as a performer, as an artist? You know. Well, Phil, I always thought Phil would wind up being a go back to graphic design. I mean, Phil, when we worked together in the Groundlings, and he was Captain Carl on the Pee Wee Herman show and in Pee Wee's Playhouse, 
he was constantly talking about getting out of show business. He hmm. was always, um, I felt like at that time, he was very insecure about being an actor and a performer. And he would always be like, oh, I'm not good enough. I should just like go back Jesus. and do, you know, so I, I talked him out of quitting my show all the time, like wow. once or twice a week. Um, and, uh, and then I think at a certain point he 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 started to get like more validation and more and more secure with what he did and he got better too you know I mean he was fantastic when I first met him and he became brilliant so I th I think he um, I think he always doubted his ability oh uh, I I I, re I really feel like that but I think it's weirdly um, comforting for people to hear that they that what Phil Hartman where you go well that guy's gotta know how incredible he is. To yeah. hear that, you know, he is the same. But you know that's not true. I mean, you know, you must meet lots of people that... I, I mean, I guess you don't really... You know, one, don't know. one never knows who's insecure and who's not, because mm -hmm. we're all actors and we're all, hey, uh, insecure, me. <laughs> you know, but, I'm crying inside, please. Someone hug me. <laughs> I just want to be validated in some way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, there is definitely... I mean, obviously, I think anyone who wants to do this job obviously has... Insane problems. Something, yeah. Something Mental issues. Something about them that it, where there's a, you know, there's there's some type of gap and it needs to be filled in some way or some type of validation that you need. Because it's a weird thing to do to get up in front of people and be like, look at me, like me, laugh at me. Do Present company exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> we're all healthy. No, we're fine. I'm talking about everyone else. Yeah. Um, so how did, uh, at that particular time... I may have to lay down for the rest of this part. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> There's a dog bed right there. At that, at that time, you know, it wasn't as common for uh, a comedy show to just get plucked onto HBO, which was still relatively new in 1981, maybe maybe six, seven years old. Maybe oh, point. my show, when it aired here uh, in 1981 on HBO, it couldn't, you couldn't see it in L.A. H HBO wasn't in Los Angeles in 1981. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was really weird. I had this incredible show and the showcase for myself, and... Uh, it was just about to be here, and it was lots of other places, and it was some weird, fluky thing that it wasn't right in Los Angeles yet, HBO. So what was the path between the HBO show? So it was HBO show, and then a couple of years of Letterman, and then did that lead to the movie? Yeah, I couldn't get anything happening after that HBO show. I went as far as you can go on your own with without having like this whole team and I, I didn't have a manager and I didn't have all the stuff that I couldn't turn that show into the next thing. I, I, I had a movie deal from the, from the stage show. Uh, I was offered to do all kinds of stuff. Like you're a boy who can turn into a dog once a week on your own show, <laughs> you know, like all these weird, <laughs> weird things that didn't seem like the right thing. But I uh, made a deal to write a Pee Wee Herman movie, um, with Paramount right after the show. And I wrote it with Gary Panter, who was the designer of the original stage show. And it was called Pee Wee's big adventure, but it wasn't about a bike. We just used that title later on the bike movie and um it was about the stage show it was Pee Wee herman and i i wrote it for phil hartman captain carl and lynn stewart miss Yvonne, and uh terry the pterodactyl and Pee Wee, and uh it was a whole 
epic adventure story outside of the playhouse. And um, it, uh, we, we took nine months to write it. And at the end of the nine months, I took it into Paramount. And it was like a novel I'd never written. <laughs> I'd, I'd never written a script before. I didn't know what you were. So it was pages of description, you know, the, fl- the light flickered on their face, you know, all this stuff that you're like, you know, it's not appropriate in a movie script. Um, but it was good. I, th- I think it was, you know, if you could strip all the way, all that away from it, it was a, a good little story and stuff. Um, but they said to me, well, you're not hot anymore. Oh, and I thought like, oh, huh. I didn't know that. I didn't, you know, I didn't know <laughs> that. For telling yeah, I didn't yeah. know that part. I didn't know I was supposed to stay active and still keep myself hot. For... In 1987, did you call them and go, am I hot now? Click. Um, no, that was a whole separate other thing <laughs> then, you know. But I went on a tour in order to get that movie made, um, I went on a 22-city tour that my managers at the time went, you're going on a 22-city tour so five people in Los Angeles can see you can sell tickets. And and they were right. I mean, when I finished that tour, I I had a new deal at Warner Brothers to make a movie. And at that time, we wrote, uh, we were writing, I, I still am obsessed with this Disney movie, Pollyanna, with mm-hmm. um, Haley Mills and my nemesis when I was a kid, Kevin Corcoran, Moochie. He he was like <laughs> him him and Ron Howard were like just tortured me like as a kid. I would watch this and I'd be like, huh, you know, it's not I can do that. <laughs> you know. Did you ever tell Ron Howard that I did. I mean I, I really ruined an audition. I auditioned for no. one of my very earliest auditions I ever went on was for Night Shift. <gasps> That, Did you audition for the Michael Keaton character? Yeah. Holy Whoa, shit. shit. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Michael Keaton was fantastic in that movie. I knew Michael a little bit because I, one of my very earliest jobs was I was on a TV series that was Michael Keaton and Jim Belushi's TV show. What? Called Working Stiffs. <gasps> Working Stiffs. I, I, I remember that. So I was like the fifth banana. I was like the dorky delivery boy. I lived upstairs in the restaurant that they... That they owned, and or and, that where they worked, and there was a guy named Alan Arbus on the show who um, was. Oh, anyway, there was just all these other people. So you auditioned the for the show. Bill Blazjowski character in Night Shift, but I and I probably would have got it if I had. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I never would have got it. I was terrible. How did you ruin the audition? Well. I couldn't not tell Ron Howard like how I competed with him as a kid. Like I just couldn't. I waited. I'd waited like my whole life to be to be like you're not that great. So I was like so sorry, you know. But I have to say this, you know. I was like so jealous of you as a kid and only on to New York, you know, as a five or six year old. And I'm sure he got told that all the time by people, you know, lots of obsessed kids like me who (laughs) are right. So you suck, Ron Howard. <laughs> At least there was no. Because if there was no internet, he yeah. would have been tortured. So we talked all about that instead of like, you know, anything that would have been apropos. <laughs> um, Do you so you want to just give me the part now, or yeah. should I leave? Or how does that, that? I auditioned for. I had a bunch of really like. I auditioned for the Wanderers, and I auditioned for the Chosen. With Robbie Benson. I don't oh know if you remember God. that movie. It was like a religious movie. And one of those two movies, I think it was The Chosen, 
I can't remember what was the show. Philip Kaufman was the director. I mean, I met like big people who I would be, wow, I wish I had more experience already. <laughs> you know, I wish I wasn't terrified to go in and. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm to this day a terrible auditioner. I never get anything. If- it's a shitty process. Auditioning is a terrible process. It's artificial, it's nerve wracking. Some people are excellent at it. Um, and- I'm also super lazy and I don't want to do any work before I get the job. So the people who like, you know, let me go hire a, you know, a coach and uh, spend like, you know, a week on this. I, I'm like, no, oh, sorry. You know, <laughs> if the job's mine, I'll be happy to spend some you know, ten more minutes. Yeah, otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> so at what point did? Because the early, I feel like er, er, early Pee Wee, uh, the, the the voice was definitely more to me. Anyway, this is how I perceive it. Maybe I'm wrong, but this layer of. Uh, adult humor and not that adults couldn't enjoy the later uh, playhouse iteration of Wee, but there was definitely a point where it feels like it was like oh well let's let's this is you know let's let's bring kids more into this as opposed to like the original playhouse show the hbo show there were definitely like sexual undertones and sort of weird but we did all that on the kids show too I mean, I don't never I never know how to talk about this because I don't see it the same way like yeah. I feel like we I don't feel it feels like it the changed same. that much, but I know it did. I mean, you're not the first person that said this to me, so I, I feel like it's, you know, perhaps you're on to something. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, I, or at least maybe just because it was, maybe that's just my perception, maybe that's just the audience, some of us' perception, because it was specifically branded as a Saturday morning kids show as opposed to being like... And we like, did the original stage show that we did at midnight, we did matinees of it for kids. Originally, oh. I mean, oh. so I mean, I can't disagree with. I know what you're saying, and I don't disagree with. But it. you, there, just were, didn't there feel were any, little changes. Didn't feel any different. I think you sort of said it already. It was more like we branded it one way. So if you're going to a midnight show, you're not thinking like, "Well, my kids could be here, you know, <laughs> if they wanted to." I mean, I I always felt like we could do anything we wanted to do, and if your kid laughed at it, then y- your kid already knew about whatever it was. We weren't like. We weren't teaching your kid some playground thing that you weren't supposed to, you know, that, right. you're, that you're not supposed to learn from the playground. Right. You know, like, uh, so if you laughed at a dirty joke, then you already learned something somewhere, not from me. And I felt like, okay, great. But it was still, but it was a type of entertainment that, um, you know, it, it's 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 sort of that thing that the, it's the same thing like The Simpsons has, where it's like, oh, the kids can watch it because there's this layer, but then the grownups can watch it because there's this layer, and ultimately, in the end, their family can watch this together and actually enjoy the same entertainment, which is a very rare commodity. I don't know where The Simpsons got it from, but mine was really heavily influenced from Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> like I, when I was a kid. I could recognize there was a lot of stuff in there for adults that I didn't know yet. <laughs> right. So, and then when I saw it as an adult, I I was very impressed by that, and I just felt like that was something that would be fun to do. And also, I came into Saturday morning television at this time when it was all super inexpensive commercials for toys, pretty much, you know, the, the all animated, very, very simple animated shows that were transformers to sell transformers, you know, so, um, and I grew up like with a lot of live action shows and, uh, not only stuff like Mickey Mouse Club and, um, uh, 
Captain Kangaroo and those kind of things, but every city had its local right. show. and Their kind of local bozo show. Yeah, yeah. And, and I loved, we had Uncle Bruce and another show called Mary Ellen, and uh, I just loved all that stuff, you know, some a sea captain with like a padge drawing a picture of something. So, you know, a lot of that all came into play when we started writing it. What was the process? I'd love to hear about how Big Adventure came together and how you... How you and Phil wrote the movie and then assembled this team and Tim uh, Tim Burton and just like how did all these people come together and how did you how, how did how did it work that you know that at the end of it you came out with this perfectly polished gem of a movie that was something that no one had ever seen before? Um, wow, I don't know how I did it. Um, I well, big adventure. We were writing Pollyanna, basically. I was writing a remake of Pollyanna for me to <laughs> me to play the not a remake, a ripoff. Of, <laughs> I didn't have permission, but I was going to pretty much copy Pollyanna and play the Haley Mills role in it, <laughs> largely because it all led up in the third act to Pollyanna falls out of a tree and she's like paralyzed in a bed and. The whole town is around her bed going like, Pollyanna, oh my God. And she's like, I hate everybody. I hate life. Get out of here. I hate everything. <laughs> and I wanted, to, I wanted that moment. You know? So I was going to write a whole movie just leading up to that beat, um, which I wound up getting to do in my circus movie. Right. The circus movie is that has all that Pollyanna stuff in it. Of like, you know, it's, it's only, it's the opposite of Pollyanna, the whole town. No, it isn't. No, that's what, how Pollyanna opens. It's everyone in the town's crabby. She lives in a crabby town, and she's like, Pollyanna, you know, the glass is, the glass is half full, not half empty. Right. Um, so Big Adventure, we were on the lot writing a remake of Pollyanna, and we'd go to the commissary every day, and it was three people, Phil Hartman, a, a guy named Mike Varhall, and me. And... We, I was complaining nonstop. This is very unlike me. Not really. I'm a, I'm a big complainer. Um, (laughs) But I was complaining every day about like a a bike because everybody on the lots riding around on a bike. And so every day when we'd be walking to lunch, I'd be like, "How do you get a damn bike around here?" (laughs) You know, and they'd be like, "Well, I don't know how you get a bike." And the next day, I'd be like. Everyone here has a bike. There must be some place to go to get a bike. Like, let's find out. So one day I came back from lunch, and the the producers had bought me this 1947 Schwinn restored Schwinn racer. I still have it. It's beautiful. It's the bicycle that's on the poster for Big Adventure. Oh, wow. and um, I took a picture of me on that bike and used it on the script. When we turned it in, and they liked it so much that they bought the photo and used it on the poster later. Um, and that's the whole story. No, um, <laughs> that's just the story of the poster. We, we, um, I came back from lunch one day, and there was this beautiful orange 1947 Schwinn racer with a chain around it, chained up to a um, sign that hadn't been there before that had a painting of me, a caricature of me on it that said, Pee Wee Herman, bicycle parking only, all others will be towed, or some, you know, some <laughs> other warning. And I looked at it, and I went, oh my God, we're writing the wrong movie. And we ran into the bungalow and pulled, this how long ago it was, pulled the paper out of the electric typewriter 
<laughs> and started like, you know, Pee Wee Herman loves his bicycle more than anything, typing away and it just wrote itself really quickly. I mean, it is, wow. it is like a, for a movie to basically just have one directive, like one thing. Here's who this guy is. You see a little bit who this guy is. This is the thing he loves more than anything in the world. Now he's lost it. Now he's got to get it back. I mean, like, such a perfect... Because it's just always going to move... The momentum of the movie is always going to move forward until you find that goddamn bike. It's um, <laughs> it's now caught. It, it's, it's, it's taught in school now. Film, in film, film, film writing school. Because it's it follows such a classic format. And we basically just bought the book, um, the screenplay by Sid Field, and copied it exactly, <laughs> exactly what it said to do. On, that's a 90-page script. On page 30, the bike is lost. On page 60, it's found. I mean, it's 10 minutes into it. It does whatever Sid Field said. This is by 10 minutes. you got to know what the movie's about. Yep. So, um, yeah, we, I, I, that was my second script I'd ever written. And Jesus. Um, we wrote it and uh, turned it in. I went on a vacation. Before I left on vacation, I bought a book called Directors. This is all before the internet. And uh, I looked up, I went through the book, and any director in that book that had made a film that I liked at all, for any reason, I put their name on this list for a possible director. And when I came back, they had one director who wasn't even on my list. And they were like, this is the director. And I said, you know what? That director isn't the right director. And I remember coming out of this meeting at Warner Brothers and my two managers sitting me down and going, are you crazy? Do you, let, let, let's explain how this works. You have a greenlit picture today if you agree to this guy. Tomorrow, this whole regime could be out. There could be new people running the studio. Ironically, the two guys who ran the studio had the longest run probably in history, Terry Semmel and, um, oh man, I can't think of the other guy's name, but they were there for 20 plus years at Warner Brothers. Um, but I left this meeting with Warner Brothers saying, all right, Paul, well, you can have one week to come up with a, you know, a different, a replacement. And I remember them saying it has to be affordable, approvable, and available. They called it the three A's, Ugh. available, approvable, affordable. And uh, I went to a party that night, a groundlings party, and I was up on the roof of these people's house where the main party was going. And I was frantically running up to every single person there going, does anyone know a director? Does anybody know a movie director? <laughs> and a girl in the groundlings had just seen Frank and Weenie. <gasps> and she looked at me and she went, oh, my God, oh, my God. And she got more and more excited as she was thinking about it. And she said, I just met, I met the guy. you got to call this guy. And then she said, Shelley Duvall's in the movie. Call Shelley. Because I had just finished doing um, Pinocchio um, on Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater. Mm -hmm. People probably listening don't even know who Shelley Duvall is. Yes, Some they do. They of course do. they do. Because yeah. Shelley Duvall is fascinating for many, many reasons. But she also disappeared. She's somebody who... People don't even know where she is. Like she's uh, untraceable right now? She, well, to me, she, Shelley, if you're listening... Um, I feel like the last thing I saw her in was Roxanne, maybe? I don't know. Was she in anything... She, she, last I knew, she moved to Austin, Texas. I don't know if she, I don't know if she still is an actress. I, 
She was like one of my favorite people. She was just phenomenal. Okay, so another Pee Wee movie where the bike is now Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall. <laughs> and we have to go across. We have We're to go to Austin, Shelley Texas, Duvall. to find to find <laughs> Shelley Duvall. You had chained her up outside a joke shop, and then she disappeared, <laughs> and now she's somewhere in Texas, and we have to find her. It seems like at the end of the movie, I'm going to get to ride Shelley Duvall. <laughs> <laughs> So again, Shelly, if you're listening. <laughs> um, so, so I called Shelly Duvall, and Shelly Duvall said the same thing that this other person had said to me. The more she thought about it, the more excited she got. She went, Paul, oh my God, he's fantastic. That's the guy for you. So we screened Frank and Weenie, and I knew in 30 seconds, literally, the first shot, I, I looked at the wallpaper and the lighting and went, Here's someone who understands art direction and style. And we called Warner Brothers and went, Tim Burton. And they went, yeah, yeah, we know Tim Burton. Tim's not going to do it. We've sent 30 projects to Tim Burton. He's passed on every single one. And he won't even read it. And so my manager got it to him somehow. And he agreed the same day. And... The rest is history, as we like <laughs> nice. to say. So there was a there was already a huge buzz around him just because of Frankenweenie and his work at Disney. Yeah. Wow. Warner Brothers. I don't know if there was a huge buzz around, him, but War, he was on Warner Brothers radar because when we said, you know, oh, we found somebody, they were like, yeah, we, yeah, we found yeah, him everyone's already. found him. Yeah, yeah, we know him too. But he, I think they'd been having trouble getting him to just do anything. Pick a project. Wow. So, so were incredible. there any? Was was the was the shooting process? Um, was there any? You said you're not really an improviser, but was there any? Was there any improv on the? Just because the there, idea of someone sitting down and writing, I'm all alone. I'm rolling a big donut and a snake wearing a vest. Like did, Phil wrote that. That's a Phil Hartman line. <laughs> <clears throat> Phil wow. would write that stuff. Phil wrote the the, the X one. You know, <laughs> he wrote all the all the technical stuff like that, and he wrote that. That dream. Wow. Um, very little improv. I mean, teeny tiny bit. I couldn't tell you exactly what it would have been, but um, it's almost all on the page. And pretty much, I mean, I remember I, I saw the movie, in the, I, I saw the movie several times in, in the theater, um, but it, your, did your life must have, I mean, you, people already kind of knew who you were up to that point, but then that must have just completely... Did you feel the transformation? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Is- yeah. Yeah. I went from being sort of a cult kind of person to having a movie, a hit movie. It was. Does that fuck with your head at all, <laughs> or do you take it in stride? You know what? I was so frustrated that it took so long to like become successful that I was really, I was really happy that it finally happened. I, I mean, I just had this huge sigh of relief because for years I'd been. My parents sold the house that we grew up in, you know, and I was like, if you could just wait like six more months, I'm sure I'll be able to, you know. So, so, and, and I had, you know, I was still getting kind of supported, semi-supported. I worked in kitchens. I worked in a lot of restaurant, kitchen, uh, restaurant kitchens. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to be a waiter. I never wanted to like be, sir, this is too, you know, I didn't want to have to deal with anybody complaining about something. So the kitchen was... People couldn't come in the kitchen, yeah. so that was safer for me. But um, why did I bring up the kitchen? Because you said you were taking, you were support, using jobs to support. Yeah, I was still getting supported by my parents. So, so finally becoming successful was like a huge relief because I felt like even though I believed what I was saying, there was still the possibility all that time that it could 
turn out differently that I would be like, Oh, I worked and worked and worked and then nothing happened, you know, like, or, you know, I I just, I I feel incredibly lucky that even though it took a long time, it happened, you know? So, I mean, it is, it's pretty, Pee Wee's so ingrained on a a lot of us on such a molecular level that you, you and I met probably must have been like a year and a half ago. You came out to this office in Burbank. Longer and we, ago than that. I can tell you the day we oh. met. I'm so obsessive compulsive. I like write all this down. So, <laughs> yeah. So while you're looking up the date, that we, we met at our Soapbox. You know the Soapbox yep. guys? So we met there and just sort of talked like, well, if we were going to do something together, like what would it be? Like what could we all make for you? And, you know, uh, the, the, the Pee-wee character is definitely a separate persona from you as Paul. And so you sat in this room and all these guys were around the same age. And then you were talking very normally and you're like, Oh, it's like in Pee Wee when we were like, ah, and you kind of went into the voice and I saw everyone like, like I saw everyone visually like try not to flip out because it, it just hit this button in them that was so deep. You must know the effect. Well, it's weird. Sometimes it's weird being me in that in those kind of situations. Like the closest I ever came to knowing about what you're talking about is back in the eighties. The few times I would ever go somewhere, like go to a party, because I was so busy, I never had any time to do that kind of stuff. But once in a while, I would go out somewhere and be at a Hollywood party, and then I would know what you're talking about like i would see some huge star freak like freaking out and running across the room to me you know um and and part of it was was just that i didn't nobody'd met me you know like i was kind of a newbie as far as like the hollywood scene goes and i never went anywhere so even at the height of my fame like most people had never met me because I, I just never went anywhere so yeah. when i would go somewhere it would be, i would make a big splash people would be like holy you know I'm, and and also i spent a lot of time you know i went to art school the time i was in art school was conceptual art and performance art and so i kind of pompously thought that what I was doing was performance art and was conceptual to some degree. And, and it was in a way, the only, the only where it breaks down is it's only conceptual to me because no one else knows it's not a real person at right. that time. So the only person who knew it was conceptual or knew I was doing performance art was me. Um, <laughs> so I don't know what that means. The, like in terms of like the tree falls, you know, did it really happen? Um, who freaked you out the most that knew who, that you met? That was like, oh my god, you're that guy. Like who? Which? Oh, I mean, you name it. I, I I'm like a total like fan kind of person to this day. I, I I've got my pen in my pocket and my pad, and I'll I sometimes carry around this 1950s. Um, it's called the autograph hound, and it's like mm-hmm. a dog. It's like a stuffed animal that was made to <laughs> do autographs on. Yep. So I have one of those, and I. Occasionally, if I know I'm going somewhere where there's going to be somebody I, I want to have sign it, I'll carry that with me. And be like, Excuse me, can I get you to sign? I mean, like, you can't be corny or you know weirder than that. But um, so practically anybody that was famous that would run across the room. I'm mean, Eddie Van Halen. I remember being super excited. Like, what does Eddie Van Halen? Wait, there's say a to picture you? of you and Eddie Van Halen and. Ronnie Dangerfield, I think. No, so. close, but no cigar. Um, 
David Lee Roth. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that there's a there's a famous picture, me, David Lee Roth, and Rodney Dangerfield. That there's a there's a couple sites on the internet that say like you know, this must have been a hell of a party. Yeah, or, yeah. You know who? What party was this? It's the opening, and two years ago. That photo was on a drum set at South by Southwest that Dave Grohl played, and all these photos, and I, my Twitter lit up and everything. And that's uh, hilarious. Uh, what was it? What was the party? It was the premiere of Big Adventure. Oh, it was okay. Yeah, jeez. I wasn't sure where that was for a while, and yeah. then, I, then I finally realized where it was. I saw another picture from there that was the same same time. Wow, that's great. The opening of Big Adventure, I sat out on a throne <laughs> on, <laughs> on, the, on Hollywood Boulevard in front of the Chinese Theater. Like, right on the sidewalk, I had a huge throne, and I was wearing an ermine-trimmed cape in my peewee suit with, a, with the crown from Camelot, which I tried to keep, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and a scepter. And I walked around my house for a week or so with the scepter and the crown. I'm not bragging, but and and I tried to keep it. And uh, they kept calling, going, "You have to give the crown back." And I'd be like, "No, I'm not giving it back." <laughs> and then finally, finally, I had to give it back. I remember in the uh, in the commentary for Big Adventure uh, with you and Tim Burton. It's like it was basically most of it was a conversation of who has which prop now. <laughs> It's like, it's and, like, well, most of it was our original stuff. I mean, yeah. it belonged to us. Plus, there was a time after the movie when they went like, we're throwing all this away. Do you want it? And I was like, are you crazy? Of course I want it. I mean, so they brought a truckload of statuary and all kinds wow. of stuff from, from Big Adventure. And you guys kind of split it up between you two? The, no. I don't <laughs> think Tim even knew about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember the commentary because I remember he would be like, I wonder where that is. Now. Well, the, like, commentary, oh, the commentary, I remember the commentary of just being like me and Tim sitting watching the movie going like, oh, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, remember that? Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember that. Like the commentary is really kind yeah. of dull. Because... I liked it because it, it reminded me also of the, like, the commentary anytime uh, Kurt Russell and... Uh, and um, a John Carpenter. Carpenter do like commentary. It's just like it's like they haven't seen each other in a while. It's them hanging out, watching an old thing they did. <laughs> oh shit! I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That's what Big Adventure was. Yeah, that's, that's great. But then uh, also, I thought you were phenomenal in Buffy too. Oh, like, thank yeah. you. Like that because I hadn't really, I hadn't. That was the first time I had really seen you not as Pee Wee, and just doing this kind of other this other character. But the original the original uh, Joss. Buffy was a phenomenal movie that I yeah. feel like our audience probably knows, but if they don't, they should go watch the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, that's Joss wrote it, but didn't direct it. Right. They had a different director. And then Blow, like, when you, after Blow, were you like, oh, I kind of want to do more just, like, weird... You know what? All this stuff you're talking about is stuff that someone called me up and said, will you do it? <laughs> so you like, don't want to audition? <laughs> no, it's not a question of I don't want to audition. It's like pointless. Like, I mean, I could be in a situation where every single person on a team that's doing a movie wants me and I still don't get it. You know, like I'll, the director, the producer, the other star, everyone, and then I still don't get it. So... <laughs> oh my god Paul you okay Paul it's so okay so I I, um, I I mainly just do stuff where people call me up you know like I'm working on the blacklist on NBC right now they called me and were like do you want to be on the blacklist yes thank you <laughs> you know Blow the the director who was one of the nicest people I ever met still to this day in show business Ted Demi who passed away yeah. shortly after that film um, 
called me up and went, I'm watching your show with my three-year-old daughter. I'd love to meet you. I have an idea for something in the movie. And uh, it happened like that. Um, same with Buffy. Uh, no one knows this. This is an exclusive here for you, Chris. But I, and I'm not kidding about this, I replaced Joan Chen in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What? It was already in production and it was the first thing I did post-1991 arrest. And I wanted... And they offered it to me, and I felt like, better get back up on the horse, man. You know, like, instead of spooking myself, I thought, I better, you know, do something. And I had it in my contract. I wanted to look as much like my mugshot as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, a, I had a goatee and long hair in Buffy, and that's why, because I wanted to look sort of similar to well, that. Well, you handled all that so masterfully at the VMAs that year. I mean, like, it just kind of instantly diffused. I can barely remember it all. It was like a, just a, a dream, kind of. Yeah. But then after that... Uh, and right after that, I did... Um, Batman Returns. Oh, right. That's right. Uh, with Tim's. That that was probably even before Buffy, I think. So um, that was cool to just, you know, be with somebody I knew and liked and was friendly. And I think we did um, Nightmare Before Christmas right at that same time, too. I remember being all kind of still caught up in all that stuff. Uh, by the way, I'm so, I'm, I, have, it is, I have to get to... This isn't related to anything. I just... It's so important for me to get to Disneyland before Halloween so I can do the Haunted Mansion with the Nightmare Before Christmas uh, theme. No, it, it goes till Christmas. It goes till after Christmas. Oh, fuck, good. Oh, yeah, because it's uh, both Halloween and Christmas. you got plenty of time. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Do you get to do anything normal like that? Or does, is it hard Yeah, for I just to... went to Not Scary Fun. Oh, yeah, of course. It's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, people don't recognize me. Or they go like, it could be him, but mm, too old. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you were saying... what? So what's going on? Plus, with- I always go out with other famous people. So you throw them in front of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they always like, or a model, one right. or the other. You know, people push you out of the way to like go talk to the pretty person. That's a, <laughs> that's a good plan. Yeah. But you were talking. So what's going on with the? Can you talk about anything with a, the potential new Pee Wee movie? Is that something that you can say, or can you not say? You know, I it. It seems like it's... T- well, it doesn't seem like it's taking forever. It is taking forever. But it it seems like that even more because four years ago, I think almost four years ago, I was doing an event somewhere and I was talking about writing a movie with a guy named Paul, Paul Rust. Rust. Paul Rust. Yeah. a friend of ours from UCB. And Paul Rust is so well known and identified with Judd Apatow that a reporter called my publicist to say... Is it Judd Apatow? Is that who is producing the movie? And so it got leaked without us wanting it, wanting people to know about it because it was going to take a while to do it. Not this long, but um, at this point, it's it's so imminent that uh, it's we actually have a director and a start date and everything. Good. It's going to start at the beginning of March, and uh, it's. It's fantastic, I think. It's actually really good. It's very similar to Big Adventure. Um, it's a road picture. has all kinds of great elements and, and, and sort of iconic kind of um, things in it that I didn't get to, I haven't gotten to yet in, in a movie. Like a Chris Hardwick cameo? Did you, did you hear about that? Uh, yeah, that could. Okay, yeah, uh, I'm just, listen, I don't, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm very busy, but I would make time. I think it could happen. <laughs> okay, good. I think it could ha- Wait, could okay, be okay, in the operative. Could. Okay, he said 
It's almost legally binding. That's yeah. true. Right? Yeah, yeah. You could play yourself or <laughs> stretch comedically into some other role, maybe. Yeah. It's Chad Hardwick. Like, <laughs> Post an after show about Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> I'd watch that. I, I would, too. Um, all right. Well, we have to... I think we kind of have to wrap it up. But uh, we should promote that um, that uh, the play, Playhouse is uh, being released... Right? Is that? Oh, can I talk about it for you a second? Talk about it all you want. Oh, I wanted to just I say. I'll keep here for four hours if you want. I'm just trying to be respectful of your time. Well, I wanted to just say the one thing I wanted to say about the the Playhouse Blu-ray set and DVD set is that it is the Playhouse was shot on film and never seen by anyone, including me, ever on film. It never existed on film. It was shot. On film, I don't know if I've said that enough. <laughs> so it's on film. It's on film, okay. and it was then the film was taken and transferred to videotape. The videotape was then edited. The whole show was compiled and edited on videotape. The effects were all created on videotape, and in those days, if you composited something, put one layer on top of another layer on top of another layer you lose a generation of clarity each time. So some of our effects are five and six layers of composite. So there's five or six layers of clarity lost. And then the whole show is taken and put on a two-inch master broadcast tape. And that's what was released on DVD, VHS cassette, and um, was just about to happen on Blu-ray until somebody said to me, this hasn't been remastered? And I went, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and they said, well, FYI, you can't watch this. It's unwatchable in high definition now. And I didn't know any of this. So we just spent the last year and a half and over a million dollars. And they went back, a company called Shout Factory that's releasing oh, yeah, it. They went back and found every single edit, every single shot with a computer program and re started from scratch, re-edited all the shows Holy from scratch. So wow. not only every edit, but then I'm OCD. I get, like, keep everything. And so I had all the elements. I not only had every foot of film, but I also had every el- original element to rebuild the effects with. Whoa. So the effects are all rebuilt from scratch, and the show looks like it was shot yesterday. I mean, it's like there's clarity in it that no one, most people don't even know my suit is Glenn Plaid, that it's not a gray suit. And when you look at, look at the clarity on the show now from the, from the opening title sequence with the beaver uh, eating the tree, chopping the tree down in, in the jungle and the exterior model of the playhouse, all the way through, it, the clarity is just staggering. And then there's um, 11 mini documentaries that part of those uh, bonus material there's i think over four and a half hours of bonus material on it so we have everybody from john singleton to lawrence fishburne <laughs> to a the murkerson to gary panter the wayne um, white wayne white oh yeah wayne uh, white of course yeah. um danny elfman mark mothersbaugh who wrote the theme um, I mean, just it's it's really. I think if if you're a fan of the show, there's a a lot of stuff inside. That's great. Stories. By the way, we should, we should give a shout out to Wayne White and also the the was it Neil Berkeley's document? Was it was the, yeah Neil Berkeley's uh, movie Beauty is embarrassing. It's a great great yeah movie. yeah. But just the whole it just seemed like so many different elements came together to create this Pee Wee universe that everything just sort of was like. It just was all perfectly the way that it was. Yeah. Yes. I could not have been luckier. I I was surrounded with hundreds of amazingly talented artists and 
And what we got to do was, was you know, I took it so, we, we all took it very, very seriously, you know, even though we had a lot of fun and goofed off and stuff, we were making a show for kids to try to touch kids' minds in some way to sort of encourage encourage young people to be creative and nonconformist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt like that was my calling, you know? And, and so it took it, it took it very seriously, and it was really fun. I, I had a really incredible time doing it. And when we would be in the writer's room and think of, of something that would make a six-year-old fall off the couch was... You know, there's nothing ever got better than that. You know, it was just an incredible time of of being able to do something um, for kids that we had no outside interference. We just did whatever we wanted to do. I mean, we policed ourselves very seriously, but um, I, I, I was just in such a lucky situation. I mean, my whole career has kind of been like that, where I've just uh, I've been in the right place at the right time and gotten to do all this amazing stuff and meet all these incredible people. And um, did you tell a story at Sketchfest where you where you would where you were smoking, but then like you kind of had to like you went out of your way to hide it so that you're like, oh, if kids- that's what John Singleton's job was. That's why John Singleton was there. I didn't want a kid to walk in and see me smoking. I smoked cigarettes uh, for many years. I couldn't stop. I even I even tried to trick myself by doing a anti-smoking campaign as Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> oh shit! And it didn't work. I mean, I had to like. So I I had like heavy duty security outside, so nobody could ever see me. Now, smoking. Would, would you take a hit of the cigarette if you were dressed as Pee Wee and you'd catch yourself in the mirror and be like, "What are you looking at?" <laughs> no. Okay. I never looked in the mirror. <laughs> really? Yeah. No, that would freak me out too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you are. You're a grown man. With all that makeup on, <laughs> wearing that oh, little suit. Oh, no, wait, that's me. <laughs> that's weird. Yeah. Uh, well, listen. I, I hope that I'm about to. I'm about to ask you to do something that I hope is not annoying to you. Oh, what? Listen, I just. I just want to slow dance for a while. Uh, no, I want to. Uh, we end the show by telling people to enjoy their burrito, which is a way that we tell people to enjoy the moment and not stress about the future and not stress about the past. Is there any way, I, is there anything I could bribe you with to get you to give us a peewee enjoy your burrito at the end where you would not be mad at me afterwards? No. Um, no, yeah, sure. I okay. And what is it again? Just enjoy your burrito. Enjoy your burrito, everybody. <laughs> Duh. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.